Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we question all of your cultural creeds, including that you have to choose between iced and hot coffee, when really it's completely civilized and appropriate to order an iced coffee with a hot coffee back. Since the Supreme Court handed down their decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization last month, overturning Roe versus Wade, certain corners of the internet have been, let's just call it, aroused. Because the legal basis of the original Roe decision was that people have a right to privacy in medical decisions. Its overturn means that that privacy is no longer guaranteed. And that means something very different now in the digital age than it did in 1973. If you've been online at all in the last month, I'm sure you've seen the tweets, articles, listicles, and more instructing people to take all sorts of precautions in the name of digital privacy. You've probably heard the exhortations to delete your period tracking apps for fear that a missed period but no baby could somehow tip off law enforcement. You may also have heard about the looming specter of geofence warrants. These are really scary. They may allow police to issue warrants for anyone whose device shows them having been near a clinic. We're heading toward a world in which a late period is grounds for a homicide accusation. So something that happens all the time has now been criminalized. And in some places, this is happening in very, very extreme ways. So you get snitches, you get surveillance, and then you get responses to that. You get hiding, you get smuggling of pills, you get meetings that wouldn't have happened, and everything becomes clandestine. It's, it's dystopic. But I wanted to put aside my own darkest fantasies for a second and get to the bottom of what we actually should be worrying about when it comes to data protection. So I called upon someone who's been in the realm of digital privacy for years. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, has been around for three decades, since 1990. And it's one of those organizations that you either know about as iconic, the way I do, or maybe you've never heard of it. But you'll find out today from Cindy Cohen. She's EFF's executive director and my guest today. And she has been fighting for the rights of platform users and digital citizens, that's all of us, since nearly the organization's inception. Cindy Cohen, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you. 
So, Sydney, I was just going to tell you how thrilled I am to have you here because I'm a longtime admirer of you and also of EFF. And for listeners who don't already know and admire you, tell us a little bit about EFF and how you came to it. Sure. Well, EFF itself was founded by John Perry Barlow and Mitch Kapoor and John Gilmore with help from a guy named Steve Wozniak, who you may have heard of. (laughs) And the idea of the EFF was to try to have an organization that was they're making sure that our constitutional rights were protected as we moved into the digital age. There had been a series of raids on people's homes and businesses that mainly were being done by the Secret Service based upon really flimsy arguments. And the organization was created to try to, you know, put a stake in the ground around, uh, in the early days, Fourth Amendment rights. You know, when can the cops come and grab all your digital devices. You know, when do they need a warrant? When don't they? So the organization was founded to try to do that. Then I got involved around 1992, 93. I was friends with John Gilmore and I knew some early internet hackers out of the Free Software Foundation. And they asked me if I would take on a case to try to free up encryption technology from government control It was fairly obvious that if we were going to have any security or privacy in the digital world, we needed access to encryption. And the government treated it like it was a weapon. It was on the U.S. munitions list next to, you know, surface-to-air missiles and tanks was software with the capability of maintaining secrecy. And I undertook a case called Bernstein versus Department of Justice to try to free up encryption so that the rest of us could have it. And luckily or, or happily, we were successful. And um, that's why we have the security that we have in, you know, whether that's signal messaging or WhatsApp or other things where you use your credit card. That case was one of the foundations for security online, and and it's still under threat. There's a bill in Congress right now to try to undermine strong encryption. This is a fight that has sadly never really gone away in the whole 32 years of the organization's existence, which is frustrating, uh, to say the least. But you've also had successes. I mean, it's interesting when listeners think about contemporary complaints about the internet, we think about too much trolling, you run into neo-Nazis. And in other words, we're, we're thinking that the internet is too free and lets some bad actors run amok. But of course, there's the opposite threat too. There's too much control, too much government kind of incursion. Uh, In the early 90s, and including, I mean, I'm sure you remember the clipper chip, that device that popped up in the early 90s, I guess, theoretically encrypted your data, but had this backdoor that let the government look at whatever they wanted to. There was just all this kind of surveillance and search and seizure. And, you know, the protections that you were at the forefront of securing for us internet citizens it, it kind of can't be overstated. Yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, the thing about it is that, like, if you're in an either-or mindset, you're going to get it wrong, right? It, it mm, can't mm-hmm. be either the companies have complete control or the government has complete control. Not, neither of those is a world you want to live in. Nobody wants to live in a, a Chinese-style repressive regime where if you say something that the government doesn't want, you find yourself censored or worse. And we also don't want to live in a world in which, you know, uh, the whims of the corporate 
bosses decide what we get to say and how much privacy we have. And, you know, the surveillance business model is a, is a horror show. So you can't be in the either or mindset. Like we've got to figure out how to do both smart. That seems right. And it also goes to the experience that you all conjured it and, and made me understand at EFF in the early days, which is this is a whole new kind of thought experiment on the order of an empire, a symbolic empire, namely the internet, that we can't bring to it the regulations that we just bring to corporate governance or to antitrust management, nor can we, you know, install a central government. I mean, let me just stay with you. What possibly brought you to this place that was completely unregulated and not understood? Yeah. You know what? I I don't come from a tech background. I was an English major and I was a young lawyer, but I was interested in human rights. And I had spent time at the United Nations before I started my private practice. And to me, what was interesting about this brave new world in the 90s was that we had a chance to maybe set the bar in a better place for people. Mm -hmm. You know, the internet, and, and again, it's hard to say this in a way that makes it understand how big a deal this was. But in the 1990s, it could eliminate distance, right? You could, the idea was that you could talk to somebody halfway across the world. You could organize with somebody halfway across the world. And the possibility that we could really address serious human rights abuses because we had this technology that could let people share information, let people organize across distances, let people build communities outside of the little spaces, you know, where you physically live, that was exciting to me. Personally, I grew up in the middle of Iowa in a small town. And the idea that I could have access to all the world's knowledge from my house, that is our world now. I think sometimes we don't get how important that is. I'm not saying there aren't problems, but to me in the 90s, thinking about all the ways that we could kind of make a better set of places for people. This was the promise of this technology that my geeky friends were using in the early 90s. And, you know, when I got the opportunity to do the encryption case, um, I went to my little law firm and I said, you know, I think this thing could be big. Will you let me do this pro bono case? And I don't think that they saw, I mean, they might have, but they just thought, let's make Cindy happy. And they let me do this Bernstein case. And it's been fun ever since. Mine has been important. It's been fun. And we have been able to make things better. But the problems, you know, it's much more complicated. You know, a lot of the people who are on the early internet looked a lot alike and they all had a lot of privilege in their societies. There were always exceptions, but they were exceptions. Now, People all over the world have access to this, and that increases the complexity of trying to deal with these situations. And, you know, if we're doing it right at EFF, we continue to expand and rise to try to meet the challenges. But the other thing that's good about this time is that we're not the only one. There's a huge digital rights movement. It's global. You know, we're a movement now. And we have not nearly as much power as I'd like us to have, but we have a lot more than we had when it was, you know, me and 11 people in a little warehouse in San Francisco trying to do this work. Yeah, I just want to second the idea that the internet 
really is a place, still a place, for people to find community in ways large and small and to find instruction and enlightenment, and in some cases, actual liberation. Uh, I don't know if you've heard these stories, Cindy, by ex-Mormons, but I've been listening to some of them. And really the only thing that helped some of the people who found it oppressive get out of it was access to the internet. Yep. You know, they just looked up things they'd been told and found they weren't true. And then they were able to leave. And in Russia right now, you know, they've cut off all access to the global internet. So many of the citizens are just taking in propaganda. They don't know exactly what the rest of the world is seeing. And as a result, there's a huge amount of support for Putin's war in Ukraine. Yep. The internet is is both, right? It's both this place of freedom. And I certainly know plenty of LGBTQ kids um, and other people for whom this is really a lifeline. And then at the same time, it's this place of horrible repression for some of those same people, right? This can be a vector of liberation. It can also be a vector of abuse. You know, that's why it's important that we both want people to have access to this technology, but also take seriously the problems that come along with it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Cindy walks us through how to do digital privacy in these post-row times. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. We're back with Cindy Cohen, Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Now, a lot of the initial reaction to the Dobbs decision was to recommend that people delete their period tracking apps. These are those apps where you you note where your period starts and ends, and I've never done it, but I think people other than me get a lot out of them. But in actual fact, according to the organization, this is EFF now, abortion seekers face much more urgent threats right now, and the period tracking apps are not at the top of the list of immediate concerns. So, Cindy, tell us about a post-Row world of surveillance. Maybe give us the most dystopic vision. Oh, gosh, there's so many dystopic versions. I mean, uh, let's start with what's going on right now. What's going on right now is that when someone is suspected of having engaged in abortion, this has happened in Ohio, it happened in Mississippi, we're going to start to see more of these things. What the police will generally do if they're investigating this is they will seize people's devices and look on the devices for information. So um, it definitely happened in Ohio and the, the Mississippi case where someone was turned in by an ex or a hospital worker or somebody. The police will take the device, and then they'll look on the device for evidence that the person was seeking an abortion. And they often found it. In one, it was some text messages. Uh, In another, it was some searches 
but they're on the device themselves. That's what the cops are used to doing. They do it in other investigations. And that, I think, ought to be the first place that people ought to think about protecting. What does that mean? That means things like encrypting the device. It means things like maybe if you're in a position to use another device for this work or use other accounts, set your device up so it doesn't have that information on it or that that information is encrypted or otherwise hard to get without your participation. There are later scenarios that we're going to probably see at some point, things like using um, general searches of the area around abortion providers or people who are known to assist people with abortions to try to find the other people that are associating with them and then identifying those people and arresting them or, or otherwise. I mean, we've got both civil and criminal threats here. So we've got people who might be seeking bounties on the civil side, and we've also got law enforcement on the criminal side. You know, the worst scenario is that automatically upon searching, for something or automatically on messaging and saying a certain word or, you know, the AI in the system will identify you as somebody who might be seeking an abortion or helping somebody seek abortion and alert law enforcement. That's not our world right now. It will take some changes before that becomes our world. But but that's the scary scenario. The scary scenario is our ability to seek information or seek help is so surveilled that people seeking abortions or abortion information or seeking to help them can't do it without being identified and then prosecuted. There's low-hanging fruit right now that ought to be our priority. Things like period apps and other things are not the low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit is what is on your device, especially the device that you're carrying around when you're doing this work, and how can you secure it? And I want to say to listeners, uh, if you are this person or you have a friend of a friend of a friend who's been asked to turn over their phone, you know, can they call you, Cindy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Info at EFF.org. We have a full-time person who helps people who need this kind of assistance. I-N-F-O at EFF.org. I'm Cindy at EFF.org. You can also email me. But yes, please reach out to us. Please don't, unless you absolutely have to, don't volunteer to unlock your phone. Um, But, you know, uh, police pull all sorts of intimidation tactics around people, things like, well, we're going to take you in and we'll hold you overnight unless you do that. People get pressured into this. I mean, the one thing I want to say is there are things that people can do to better their odds and make it harder for the police. But to really fix this, we need changes in law. Individuals do not have all the tools that they need to protect themselves right now. We need changes in laws. There is a bill in Congress that would extend the scope of privacy protection around health care that's much broader than HIPAA. HIPAA is actually a relatively narrow law. Um, it does some things, but, but this is a much broader attempt. And there are many attempts in states as well to pass legal things that would better protect people. But it's not fair to tell people that it's solely their responsibility. And it also is completely wrong to say that if you take all the steps that even EFF would recommend, you would be completely safe because we need other kinds of help than just what you can do on your own device. Right. And, you know, when it comes to digital privacy, there's just too much for the average individual to think about. I guess as I've had it explained to me, it's not just what you're saying or searching for. It's also the metadata, you know, the data around the data. So even if you're not texting a friend about abortion clinics, every time you touch the internet, you may be throwing off data you don't even think about. You know, one of the architects of Tor, which I'm sure you know, that very encrypted network that has some 
bad uses and some good ones. He was telling me that the, the kind of idea behind encrypted communication is that a user gets to say what they want to say, just the content in a communication, just the content of, you know, if it were a letter, you'd want to say just the words in the letter, not the envelope, not the return address, not the postmark, not the fingerprints. And, you know, again, I don't think this should be all on ordinary citizens to sort this out. So what are some defensive measures we can take? Do you believe that there are some apps that are more secure than others, that work better than others? WhatsApp, Signal, some of the uh, protected text apps? Yeah, I was on the tour. I was on the board of directors of Tor for a few years, oh, by the way. Okay. So just just full disclosure, I am all in with the idea that you should be able to get the information you want and say the things you want to say without all of this. I mean, my friend Bruce Schneier sometimes calls this digital pollution or the digital exhaust, all the non-content pieces of what you're doing um, that are the, often, again, the most important things. So uh, yes, EFF in our surveillance self-defense materials, we've got specific playlists for abortion. We've got specific playlists for people going to protests and other things, because depending on your threat model, it might be very different, the kinds of things you do. But yes, we're big fans of end-to-end encrypted services. Signal and WhatsApp both use the same protocol. They are secure end-to-end. I'm not a big fan of the way WhatsApp actually tracks associational data and other things over it. Um, I think uh, Signal, which is a nonprofit, is a a better option. But in terms of end-to-end security, they are both quite good. And and WhatsApp is is definitely more readily available to people around the world. Mm -hmm. We like the privacy-protected browsers. Again, EFF doesn't endorse any of these, but we do want to lift up the ones that are worthy of consideration. So DuckDuckGo is a browser that doesn't um, track you. Tor has a browser that works well. So there have been many, many changes to abortion technology since before Roe. And now, in fact, the majority of abortions are done via pills and online and with telemedicine. So it sort of makes you wonder about security in that arena. I mean, you and I are talking over Zoom right now. And I don't even know, frankly, how much this Zoom call is available to authorities or those bent on surveillance. Do you know? Well, early on in the pandemic, EFF and a lot of people pushed Zoom, and now Zoom has much better encryption than it had before. So Zoom is more secure than it was. I wouldn't say it's 100% secure. I haven't seen their latest transparency report, but I think they do put one out. And so that would be a place to look for how often are they receiving law enforcement requests and mm-hmm. how often are they responding to them. And this is a thing that EFF has done in a lot of sectors is really push tech companies and other companies to put out these reports so that we can have at least a a window into how often law enforcement is coming to seek information from them. Does that mean that even our, you know, real-time communication could somehow be subpoenaed or listened in on? Honestly, I think that uh, Zoom will comply with legal process if it's Mm. possible to wiretap a Zoom call, and I think it might be in some Mm. situations, Uh, then then yeah. And and many, many times, I would say most of the time, a wiretapping order comes with a gag, so Zoom can't tell us. I think it's more likely that law enforcement would turn one of the parties to the call and have them recorded. And Zoom, to their credit, didn't used to do this, but now you get a notice if anybody is recording a Zoom call. So that helps a little bit. Um, I I can't go deep on Zoom. I'm afraid I I just don't know exactly how it all works, but it is better than it was when we started. But, you know, Mm -hmm. wiretapping orders still exist. We also know 
you know, the national security infrastructure taps into the internet backbone and the U.S. government on the national security side can snag communications in real time and also Mm -hmm. check the metadata, like who's talking to who stuff, which, you know, our argument, and I think it's right, is that that should be First Amendment protected. The right of association is in the First Amendment. Um, But we've really seen law enforcement, both in the state and national security side, really not abiding by our right of association. And that's a place where we ought to have protection. We're going to take another break. When we get back, Cindy offers some much-needed hope for what our online ecosystem could look like. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. We're back with Cindy Cohen, Executive Director of EFF. You know, Cindy, if you go all the way back to the First Amendment... The right to assemble was an obsession of the founders. The idea you should be able to put your heads together with anyone you want and and mark whatever religious service or, or plan whatever political action you wanted. And it seems like it's that part of our rights that's really at stake here. I've seen feminists online insisting that we all stop putting the word abortion into our servers and that we switch to VPN which allows more secure communication and a whole set of what I think of as almost prohibition era or fugitive slave act era moves, create a network, a whole ecosystem that evades the state laws and a Supreme court edict. Yep. I think that's important, right? It's really important. And I think that there's a set of those. You're right about VPNs. Uh, Again, the Tor browser, secure messaging, thinking about how do you secure your phone using a code to secure your phone rather than Mm -hmm. a biometric, rather than your thumb or your face. Um, Mm -hmm. There is an argument that that gives you a little more Fifth Amendment protection. Um, The courts are split on it right now. It's something that we're deeply involved in. There's a whole set of things, I mean, that, that... are important to set up and a kind of an underground way for people to still exercise their rights because the above ground way is getting harder and harder. I mean, and the ironic part is we've seen it given up for free without a second thought. You know, in the 70s and 80s, people would never give out their social security numbers, not for anything. And there was all that anxiety about surveillance through every possible pore in your non-wired life. And it turns out when you give people an opportunity to give their information away, they've, they've given so much of it away. Like, I type in my address now at the drop of a hat. I even have facial recognition. I held out for a while with facial recognition, and then I gave up because it's, it's too convenient. Yeah. I, and, and the answer to this, I totally agree. And I do a lot of this stuff, too. I mean— Apple, for instance, and again, I you know, I we're very critical of Apple in a lot of ways, but you know, the way Apple does face ID, that information doesn't go to Apple and they don't use it to do mm. other things. Whereas mm. that's not the same for Facebook's face ID, for instance, until they stopped, right? They recently stopped because there was so much criticism. Mm-hmm. But we need to set up a world so we get all these goodies. 
Like, I am pro-tech. I think tech can make our world better. It ought to make our world better. And all of the cool goodies that we get can be set up so that they stand with us as opposed to standing against us. Mm -hmm. We just have Mm -hmm. to make sure that that happens. And sometimes that takes policy. Sometimes that takes law. Sometimes that takes shaming. But we have to continue to to do that because we should have the benefit of these technologies. It's all of these, you know, what uh, uh, the law sometimes called secondary uses, right? Information that's collected for one purpose that's then used for another purpose. It's been part of the fair information practices since the, the 80s and 90s that like that's unfair and shouldn't be what we do. But we have the surveillance business model is built on this. It's built on you giving your address so that you can have your package delivered and then having that information bundled and sold to to do other things. And and that's the place where I think we've got, we ought to be able to put the lever, not the don't ever buy anything online place. Yes, that seems exactly right. I want to end on an up note a little bit. What could we expect from a fixed internet or an internet with some of these most robust measures in place. Thank you so much for this. You know, EFF, uh, we started a podcast recently in the last couple of years called How to Fix the Internet. And it came from this place. I feel like I've spent my whole career telling people, don't go there. It could go terribly wrong. Here's all the ways it could go wrong. And that now we have a society that only sees the things that can go wrong. And I think in some ways has lost the ability to envision what the world would look like if we got it right. So I've got some good ideas from the people I've talked to so far. And, you know, what it looks like a lot is that individuals are in control of their experience online. They're in Mm -hmm. control of what kind of information they share and what can happen with it. The Mm -hmm. people and communities are in control too. Um, A lot of community empowerment came up over and over again in the people that we're talking to. What cameras are in your community? What are they being used for? What license plate readers are in your community? What are they being used for? The people have knowledge and the ability to control and the ability to say no to mm-hmm. surveillance uh, in their communities. And so we've got individual control, we've got community control, and we have the ability to understand how this stuff is being used. But we also have systems that are set up to protect us in this idea that the platforms and tools that we use have an obligation to us to treat the data that they collect about us in our interests. The same way when you go to a lawyer or an accountant, they have all your information. You trust them with your information in large part because they have duties to make sure that they don't use that information for anything but helping you. Right. Um, that's a one set of ideas around a better world, a world where the tools we use are not Mm two-faced. They're one-faced. They just help us and they are obligated to just help us. And there's real accountability when they're not. Cindy Cohen, it is just such a pleasure. You're a legend, if you don't mind me saying. Oh my goodness. It is just such a pleasure to get to talk to you about all this and uh, and and see what happens next. Yeah, um, um, Virginia, as I said, uh, I am such a fan. This is just a personal highlight for me to get to, to talk with you because you're one of the people who's been thinking about and saying smart things about, especially the kind of cultural and social side of this zone that we're in from the, the very beginning. And I always look forward to reading what you've written. So thanks. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. 
It really helps other people learn about us. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ayla Fetter and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.